80%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gittings. On today's program, we're talking about major fair, very fair increase since by consider, being considered by the government. Free operators have applied for fare increases of between 22 and 100%, with the steepest hikes proposed for some routes connecting Hong Kong Island with Lama and Peng Chau. LegCo is due to discuss the proposals at a special finance meeting that's uh, just started, and uh, the government says it will consider the applications prudently, considering the financial position of the operators as well as public affordability. So what do you think of the prospect of higher ferry fares? Can people afford it, and do the operators have any other options? After 9.45, we'll look back at the life of veteran Hong Kong actor Richard Ng, who passed away at the age of 83. So let us know what you think. You can let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Southern District Councillor Paul Zimmerman. And on the line, we have Alok Jane, CEO and Managing Director of TransConsult, and Quinton Cheng, a spokesman for the Commuter Concern Group public transport research team. Good morning to all of you and thanks for joining us on the program. Now, Alok Jane, um, we enjoy having you on Backchat, but uh, recently, every time you're here, we're talking about fare hikes, buses, tunnel tolls, star ferry, and now this. Um, so what's going on? I mean, do outlying ferries really need to increase fares and uh, by that much? Well, uh, good morning, Janice, and thank you for me having me here. But I, I think there are two things here. One is, obviously, uh, fare increases, to me, is an inevitable part of living in an urban setting. We have inflation and the cost of operation goes up, so you have to adjust the fares uh, accordingly because that goes in line with the wages. Otherwise, you can't improve the wages, you can't cope up with the maintenance and all of those things. So fare increases in a, in a full-cost model is, is something that is inevitable. So that's putting that aside... The question always is how much, and and let's say if you divide the operating cost of a of a public transport operation, uh, normally roughly about thirty percent is taken up by the fuel, uh, forty to fifty percent is taken by the staff cost, and the remaining cost is of you know supply repairs and maintenance. And is the staff cost going up by hundred uh, percent? I don't think so. Uh, has the fuel gone up? Yes, it has quite. Uh, you know, increase from the the lows of the that we had seen in the market. So there are changes, and those are all very transparent and known. And that's why most of the countries are now going towards a formulaic approach uh, to fair setting. And that's what I have been also talking about. That instead of having this arbitrary 22.5 percent or 100 percent, which nobody knows how that has been calculated, and and basically the operators can apply for anything they want. And the government says that they will look at the financial position of the operator. I feel that this inevitably leads to uh, incentivizing poor performance by the operator. So operator doesn't make money and end of the day says, I'm not making money. If you don't increase the fare, I'm going to get out of business. And I think that is not a position any city would like to be in. There needs to be certain level of transparency. There needs to be certain level of contestability in the market. And that keeps the fares 
stable, especially knowing the fact that this is a monopoly market. There are no, not multiple operators, there's not, no competition on that particular segment. I think that ultimately affects the people who live there, who are dependent on that mode of transport uh, to, to commute, to do their daily lives. You... So I think that, that way, this arbitrary approach is, in my opinion, is not the right approach. You seem to be suggesting that it'd be better to have some sort of fixed formula, as I think the electricity companies have, although there'd be a lot of criticisms of that formula as well, but uh, that there should be some f- fixed formula maybe linked to inflation and costs? Yes, I mean, that is, those are known indicators in the market. Any economic models factor in those things, any forecasting model for, uh, for you know, factors in your wage indexes, your, you know, CPI and things like that. And, and those are the things that need to be taken into account. The financial performance of an operator is irrelevant in my opinion. I mean, it's a business end of the day. And if somebody doesn't want to operate it, they, they can exit and somebody else can come in. So that, that's what I meant by contestability. So there is no contestability either at this moment in the market. It is, you know, locked in with one guy and that one guy basically says, I'm not making money, so I can increase prices as much as I want. Uh, Paul Zimmerman, um, they've, uh, the outline ferry operators have asked, depending on the route, increases between 45 to 100%. Uh, do you think they're going to get that? Do you think they're going to get that? Well, I, we've seen it already before. Uh, uh, you know, the Star Ferry Company was asking for a lot of increase, and they uh, and so they ended up with fifty six percent. So that's you still know, pretty massive, isn't you, it? That's yeah. right. So you put a you pick a big amount of money, and then you see where you get. And you see the same thing that the bus companies did the same thing. Uh, they haven't finalised the, the fare increases yet, but the bus companies recently made proposals, including presentations into Letico, where they asked for across the board two dollar increase for the, by Bravo, which for some uh, bus rides means means. Uh, a more than 50% increase in fare. So it is a trend this, uh, this year that we see this massive uh, the, uh, increase has been asked for. And, but so it's uh, just a game. They, they bid high to uh, deliberately bid uh, high, knowing they're not going to get what they bid for, but to still try and get a... Um, a, a still a still substantial increase at the end of the game. So, and they know how government works, and government needs to win. So then everybody publishes a very high demand in in, in advance, and then the government is shown is shown to be a winner because they've negotiated it down, and then we're all settled on, on and go forward. So so then everybody looks like they are a winner. You're suggesting there's some sort of informal discussions behind the scenes and sort of uh, well, I mean, I, I, informal discussions are definitely in, uh, in, informal expectations and how how one behaves in this negotiation. Um, so the but the question is really whether I, and I agree with Al- Alok. I mean, I've been trying to figure out whether this amount of money does make sense, and the transparency in the performance of the operators is in the financial performance of the operators is very hard to find out. And government is looking at it internally; it's not externalised the data, so the transparency for the public is is very very weak. And and then it, you, you anyway have this strange situation: you have a public service provided by private companies, um, and the public service in, in, in many in countries where I, I originally come from, like Holland. It is. It's not. It's seen as a public service and as a public good, and the prices are set for be, as, as a public service, and they're not necessarily set as a as a for a profit making enterprise. So they're subsidised. So you're subsidising public services like uh, like transport, but in Hong Kong we don't have that, and that leads to this odd situation where we had these negotiations with them. very clear. The, the, the other thing to me would be is non fair revenues. Um, you know, if I look at, the, look at these ferry piers. Um, they're sloppily maintained and managed. I mean, if they're good pieces of property that should be better managed, they could be make more money you mean out of it. Under, are they under, under development restrictions that they, they're 
the, the land use terms don't actually allow them necessarily to use them for everything that might make more money. Well, then it's the question of the negotiation between the ferry operator and the government and then the various government departments, the planning department, the lands department, the transport department to sort out how you can, how you can make better use of these properties and make sure that there is non-fair revenue. But if you now go through the ferry pier, there are the lapidated structures. There's poor services available on them. Uh, the Star Ferry Company has just increased there's a, the fares by 56%. But go to the Star Ferry terminals in, in Kowloon and on Hong Kong Island side. I mean, look at the, the, the facilities and services that are available there. Uh, look at the, the restaurants on the, on the, on the second floor, um, the watermark, um, and, and that open space there. It's all rubbish. And it's, it's prime property, and there's not made good use of it so everybody loses because it could have been a nice restaurant people can enjoy and it could be subsidizing the fares so i think there is much more that can be done in, in that sense and there's got to be much more pressure on the system to do, to deliver all right mr jane what do you think i mean um are, are there other sources of revenue that uh, these ferry operators can uh, can look at well uh, as paul said i mean these are prime properties obviously there are other sources of revenue uh, but as i said that right now the model seems to be uh, the poor financial performance is an incentive for the operator mm. because the, the poorer they do, the higher the fare they can increase, and they always keep these other things in the bank because that can be done any time they want. So they don't want to exhaust that option until they can um, you know, increase as much fare as they want. So that is a becoming a bank of insurance of last resort. Mm. I, I don't think that's how it should be approached, and we need to find operators who maximize the return. And obviously, I, I think there are, government has already done subsidy towards the capital expenditure on the, air, uh, on, the, on the ferries. Some of the electric ferries, the capital cost has been borne by the government or funded by the government. So, and if you look at that structure, I think if we go forward looking, right now with the electric ferries funded by the government, the cost of operation is going to come down substantially because there is no fuel cost fundamentally. There, or not, there is a very little fuel cost, only electricity. And Sorry, hang on. How, how, close are we, <coughs> how close are we to actually running electric ferries to the um, outlying islands? I mean, I can understand the Star Ferry, which is only, journey only takes like five, five ten minutes. But, uh, well, as close as government wants it to be. Let me put it we, we have the technology so that we could... Technology we could. is available, and you know, ferries are available. They are running that in Norway. They are running that in Stockholm. Uh, so it's a matter of just putting that in Hong Kong. Somebody has to just bring them and start operating them. Including you could run fast, the equivalent of the fast ferries you run to the outlying islands. Could you run yes, those indeed, fast ferry yeah. services on, a, on electric? Um, would you need to charge them again when they got to the outlying islands? Or you can charge them in central and they can make a return journey? Well, you would charge them at both ends. I mean, you can have charging facilities. That's not rocket science, honestly. So it, it can be just built at the ferry pier when the ferries are docking, uh, loading and loading passengers. Uh, that's the time they get fast charged. All right. I have a comment here from our listener, Henry, and uh, he says he considers the ferry fare increases uh, as uh, too high for, for those who have a, have to commute by ferry to go to work. The daily ferry transport costs for someone working in Hong Kong or Kowloon is not small, and small sums, he says, um, add up to big amounts monthly or yearly. I would uh, relocate to live on Hong Kong Island, Kowloon, all the new territories to save money and time, according to uh, this uh, message from uh, Henry. He says uh, these days everything going up in price as supermarket prices show. Now, um, Paul, I mean, is relocation a good way to deal with the ferry fare hike? 
Well, I guess it's a personal choice, isn't it? I mean, uh, how much are you willing to pay? And uh, and what, what is the enjoyment in life you want to have living on the islands has their special character. So you, you, you've, never considered living, you've never considered living on an outlier. I mean, you're a southern district councillor, so it would be a bit difficult to live. Well, I'm southern district councillor, but I live in a village in in, in, uh, in, fighting in, uh, in the new territories. But, so you uh, could uh, live on an outlier. But as people know, I'm a, mot- a motorcyclist and I'm on the motorcycle everywhere all the time. So I, I use the ferries when, uh, when I go hiking on the islands. Or, or visiting friends uh, on, on, on the island, but you know it's a it's a lifestyle choice. You, you choose for the island, so and then these are the cost the costs involved. And I think everybody throughout Hong Kong is suffering these price increases on in public transport. And when it was the people that are using the bus and have have face are facing them, people using Star Ferry are facing them, and now the people on the outlying ferries are, on the outlying islands are facing them. So it's it's a fact of life that we have to deal with that this year. But I think what the issue that on the table is for all of us is how is it being dealt with the trend the lack of transparency as uh, Alec just uh, explained I mean he is an expert in looking at these these companies and these operations and looking at these numbers um, and even he's complaining that he can't get uh, you know that, that there is a lack of transparency so let alone the public so that the, the the information that should be there available to kind of demonstrate and warrant that these increases are implemented um, is, is not available and I think that's 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 a disservice to Hong Kong all right. All right. So let, let's uh, go to Quinton Cheng for a moment. Uh, he's from the Public Transport Research Team. Uh, good morning, Mr. Cheng. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, earlier, Alec Jane says uh, these uh, ferry fare increases are inevitable. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the ferry fare increases? Uh, honestly, I, I think it's somehow unavoidable to think with the, the you know, the, the international oil prices uh, skyrocket and... Um, uh, some, somehow, we, uh, some, to some extent, we uh, have, have to accept maybe there will be some uh, adjustment over the price. But honestly, the, the range can uh, completely go crazy. Honestly, it's really too, too much uh, far from uh, public expectation. So, uh, but on the other hand, we have to look at that um, the, the very uh, usage especially uh, to the uh, inside the harbor one, um, is uh, really a uh, job quite seriously. So uh, they have to save uh, because they are uh, running costs is uh, really uh, running running higher. So uh, that's a really issue. So they they have to to somehow they have to add add on the, to our prices. So uh, so that's why I will say uh, it's really high. But to some extent. We, they have to accept. They have to adjust the price, but um, maybe, maybe this is too much. They have to do some adjustment. But, but the uh, star. They have to accept. They have to accept, honestly. The, the Star Ferry, were, ultimately the Star Ferry prices were increased by 40 to 50 percent. Do you think that kind of adjustment is reasonable for the outlying ferries as well? Um, but it is interesting that you see the public, uh, they, they may accept, oh, Oh, that's okay. Uh, if you can save the price, if you can increase up to uh, $5 or $6 per ride, you see the property, uh, honestly, they, 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 to, some, to some extent, they understand that. Um, the, 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 um, how do you say, the character of, of the ferry, uh, especially to the South Ferry one, maybe uh, not, they have to do some adjustment, not, not being uh, strong, combat, uh, 
connection between the harbors. Uh, maybe to some extent, they they, they have to keep one link as a as a characteristic as a selling point of our uh, tourist industry. Um, and look, Jane, um, we are talking about how all public transport operators basically are asking for, for, for fare increases, but there does seem to be something different about the ferry companies. I, I was looking through the list of um, proposed fare increases. It is true that uh, uh, city buses asked for a uh, flat uh, two, $2 increase, but if you look at KMB, for instance, they're asking for 9.5%. Uh, the Lantau bus company operating, <laughs> which might be an alternative for some of outlying island residents if the ferries go up too much, asking for a similar percentage. Bus companies generally around sort of um, uh, 10% minibuses as well. But then you had, first of all, the Star Ferry and now the Outline uh, Island Ferry Services coming in with these um, whacking proposals for increases of 50 to 100%. Why, why the difference between ferries and buses in terms of the, uh, what, what, what they, they are, they're arguing for? Well, well, fundamentally what they're doing is they think that, oh, I can't make money and hence uh, whatever the gap is, I need to just fill that gap using the fares uh, in the system. And they are applying the sensitivity and everybody looks at their own market and the market segmentations are slightly different with individual operators and they are putting that on top of it. Now, what, what we, again, I mean, from the, this fare increase, we have to look at the cost of operation of public transport. One of the only things that brings volatility to a public transport operation in our city is the fuel price. That is beyond our control. It can be today $40 a barrel. It could become $60 a barrel tomorrow. It could become $100 a barrel day after. We don't know those answers, and nobody can predict. And, and fundamentally, many cities have dealt with this by creating a, what they call is a fuel price a stabilization fund. So when the fuel prices go below a certain point, uh, the bus companies or the train companies uh, or, you know, or the ferry companies, they are pegged at a certain point of the fuel price. If the price goes below that, then the, you, you start putting that surplus money into the fund. And then when the prices go up uh, this uh, point of stabilization, then you start drawing from the fund and subsidizing the companies. So it is a, a mechanism that kind of gives a cushion to this volatility of the fuel price. So we don't have that mechanism. But, I mean, that's something maybe the, if fuel price is the reason the government might want to look into this price stabilization fund. The other part is wages. Wages is a major component of any public transport operation. And I don't think anybody would say that wages have gone up in Hong Kong by 100%, <laughs> and hence that need to be factored in. So we have to obviously ask this question. The point, as I said, is not about the number, how much the number is right and how much is this wrong. But the point is we don't even know where that number is coming up from. It's kind of pulled out from the air and, and, and thrown out, and everybody is outraged. And then the government, as I said, this has now become a game in this town that you propose 100%, you probably end up getting 50%, and everybody goes home happy. All right. And, and, I, and I think that is something what I'm, I'm saying should stop. There needs to be stopping of the arbitrariness of the whole process. All right, Mr. Jane, we have a call on the line. Anna, good morning. Hello. Um, sorry, folks, I'm on the MCR. Can I speak with the beleaguered consumer here? After two decades of trying to talk to the transport department of the company and all committee meetings in Moynwo on Lantau about this issue, can I just say from the consumer side, I think you'd have far less pushback from us if we got a decent service. Now, it's only recently 
that we got a ferry, a fast ferry, between 7.30 and 9.20 um, going to Moiwo. Now, this is now a major consumer, uh, uh, commuter route. But, but the problem here is the bus company hasn't kept step with that. So you get the 8.35 fast ferry now. Guess what? There's no, no bus. So you have to hang around for another hour for a bus to come. This is a legacy problem. I have a long knowledge of this. It's to do with the relationship between the Rural Committee, um, which is very powerful on the island, and the transport companies, especially the uh, Lantau bus companies and the ferry companies. Any change in timetable, either to buses or to ferries, must get past the Rural Committee, who don't like fare increases. And that was always the excuse that we never had fast ferries in in between 7.30 and 9.20 was because, quote-unquote, local people wouldn't pay the extra fare. But it's a big difference. It's 30 minutes on the fast ferry and 50 minutes on the slow. There's other things like on the Lantau ferry. We can't bring animals onto the fast ferry. Not the case on the Lama ferry. You can take animals on all ferries. So there's all kinds of things that aren't user-friendly about this. And the fact that the buses and the ferries don't marry up. When you get off the ferry, there's a bus in 10 minutes, usually. When you come the other way, like this morning, I didn't take the ferry because if I got the bus at quarter to eight, I then had to wait 20, 25 minutes in my world for the ferry. So there's a lot of legacy issues here. It's not just about can they make money at the ferry pier. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, for your call. Um, um, Alok Jane, I'm not sure if you, you caught most of that because of the quality of the phone line. Um, yeah. So, Mr. Jane, what do you think? I mean, Anna there, she's talking about uh, the quality of service. I mean, it, look I at... Mean, that quality of service is twofold. One is obviously the, the quantity that is provided in, in, the, in a certain part of the market. So number of buses that are running or number of ferries that are running, I think that is one side. And then the second is the quality of the service that is provided, which is how well they are connected, what is the intermodality. So in an ideal world, you can synchronize the operation in such a way that the bus times are synchronized with the ferry times and you arrive at the, at the ferry pier and, and the ferry is ready to go right after that. Mm-hmm. So that is an, in an ideal situation. These are not impossible to achieve in today's day and age. And many cities have these intermodal uh, systems which give people full control of their journeys. And, but in Hong Kong, we are still in a multi-modal uh, or multi-operator system where they don't talk to each other. There is no sharing of the data. There is no uh, single app that can give you a whole journey planning system within, within Hong Kong. And I think those things are really the problems. But I think those are not related to ferry, uh, I mean, or fare increases. Those are more related to the operating environment and I think in a high-frequency system, which we have in the urban area, those issues don't arise as much. But certainly in places like Muivo or Lama, where the number of uh, people using the services are less, uh, these issues are really of utmost importance. But the point Anna was making was it'd be easier to justify um, high increases if the service was better, I think, Anna Jane. Yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, so, th- so that is a market-driven approach. And, and obviously that is where the whole concept of profit-driven public transport actually came from this perspective, that people would be willing to pay for a good quality service. And we saw that happening when, the, when we changed from non-air-conditioned buses to air-conditioned buses. We provided better services. So obviously people were willing to pay for those things. And, and there's nothing wrong with 
um, you know, providing a better service and people happy to pay for that service. The synchronization will be a transport oh. department requirement. I mean, the sync, they have to do that. Yeah, yes, indeed. But one is, is, is a regulatory side where they put it on a piece of paper and say, let's achieve this, and they can write in the policy document and whatnot. And the second is achieving that on ground and making sure that it works, somebody measuring the performance, fixing the problems where it is needed, and, and operationalizing it, basically. All right, uh, Mr. Jaina, let's take a quick break for the news and uh, continue our discussion afterwards. And now if you're tuning in and you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy, sunny intervals during the day with a top temperature of around 28 degrees. Winds light to moderate east to southeasterlies. And the outlook, few showers tomorrow becoming fine on Sunday. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 24 degrees, relative humidity 81%. It's now 9.30. With a new summary, here's Andrew Shirovsky. U.S. investigators say they've arrested a 21-year-old airman who they believe is linked to the leaking of classified government documents. He's been named as Jack Teixeira, a member of the intelligence wing of the Air National Guard. Media reports say he was the head of an online group on which the documents first emerged. Earlier, the Pentagon said it would review access to sensitive information. North Korea has described its latest weapons test as a major step in its ability to carry out nuclear strikes. Pyongyang said it fired a type of missile yesterday that it's never launched before. The intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic device used solid fuel. And the most powerful storm to hit Western Australia in more than a decade has made landfall on the state's northern coast. Evacuation orders were issued ahead of Cyclone Ilsa's arrival. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. Firing practice will be carried out at the same Y and Tiling range in Fanling today from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. During daytime practice, red flags will be hung at proper places around the firing range. During night practice, red lights will be hung along the boundary of the range. For safety reasons, members of the public are warned to refrain from entering the firing areas within the period of firing. Be a positive parent and nurture children in proper ways with a good attitude. Show more care and encouragement to your children to help them build confidence. Cultivate positive and optimistic attitudes. Appreciate your children's uniqueness. Unleash their potential to help facilitate children's all-round development and promote their physical and psychological well-being. Parental care and love help children grow up with confidence. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Alok Jane, CEO and Managing Director of TransConsult. And on the and, uh, here with us, we also have Southern District Councillor Paul Zimmerman and Quinton Chang, a spokesman for the Commuter Concern Group. 
public transport research team. Now, before the news, we had a caller, uh, Anna, who's a consumer of the um, Outline Island ferry services. And uh, although the line was, was quite bad, she made some important points uh, talking about uh, how uh, Outline Island residents are pretty dissatisfied with the quality of the service, particularly that um, you can't take pets on the, the fast ferries, which can be a real problem in emergencies. And uh, saying also that the um, Rural Committee on Land Towers was opposed to using sometimes fast ferries, which they think, think are just uh, too expensive and um, that cause further problems. So, Paul Zimmerman, what, what are your thoughts on these points? Well, I mean, it, 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 you've got to get the rural committees on board if you want to get anything done on the uh, on You have experience of dealing with rural committees. Yeah, right? but especially regarding land matters. But when, when it comes to transport matters and the interest of the, the, the members of the rural community live on the islands, I mean, the rural committees, if they're on, on, on your side, your government will respond more quickly and more efficiently. No, what I f find more interesting is actually, and I, I mean, Arlok maybe you want, want to speak on this one. I mean, the, we, we're coming out of a poor period of transport. I mean, we, 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 the, passenger, the passenger loads on, on these ferries have been low because of COVID they and work restrictions. They must huge amounts of money during COVID. So if they're going into government today and say, well, look what happened over the last three years, I lost all this money. I need to increase my fares. That would not be right. They have to increase the fares based on forecast numbers, looking at proper use and everybody back to work type of uh, loading of the ferry. So, again, do, can you see that, Arlok, from the numbers? Hello, Jane. Well, of course, the numbers are going up at the moment. We, nobody can argue how much they will go up. And there are obviously there are doomsday scenario where they say that nobody is, no tourist is going to come back to Hong Kong and it will remain a muted market. Uh, that's one, obviously one extreme of the uh, viewpoint. And then, of course, there is another viewpoint where we say that everything will be hunky-dory and we will have the same number of people coming back and everything will be fine. Uh, so depending on who you ask, I think these are, uh, to some extent, uh, of course, a matters of opinion. And I don't think I'm qualified to answer whether Hong Kong has lost its sheen or Hong Kong is still the bright spot um, for, for tourism market. That, that's something that remains to be seen because it's linked to so many things in Hong Kong, you know, what kind of events we have, what kind of facilities we have, what kind of schemes we launch, what kind of connectivity we have, and, and those are unknown at the moment. So, but having said that, assuming that people, uh, you know, there is a steady state, we eventually would lead to uh, a stabilization of the market. Once we reach, reach that stage, then what happens in the market, I think that's the key question here. And I don't know what their forecasts are. And, and coming back to the same thing, the data points that are needed to decide what is reasonable uh, fare increase are not available. And this is, and that's why this is, looks like more pulling it out of a hat. What, what, what kind of data would you? Be. What kind of data would you like to see available? That's good. Oh, the, the forecast that they are making for the future, the financial performance, what measures they have done to optimize their costs, what kind of difficulties they, or what kind of increases they have assumed on their wages. So we have to ask that whether what the fares are funding is going towards upkeep mm. and maintenance of a reasonably good ferry operation, or whether it is going towards the operators. Uh, you know, of tightening their pockets, you know, and, and I think that's the question. If we are just pumping this up and, and putting that into, you know, a poor operation or poor or non-efficient operation, then that's not something public should be funding. All right. Let's go back to uh, Mr. Cheng for a moment. Mr. Cheng? Yeah. Right. So right before the news... Yeah, right before the news, uh, we, we had a caller, Anna, and then uh, she was questioning whether the uh, quality of ferry services uh, justifies um, the fare increase. Uh, any thoughts on that? Oh, 
I what I think is uh, the uh, you see the actual women cops they are really women high. Uh, I, that's why we say uh, this unavoidable to to make the price increase. But uh, honestly, the range is probably too much. But uh, I, I agree that uh, how 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 how. Uh, Government should take a point that to uh, how to help the operators to lower their costs because uh, honestly, uh, they are some quality. It, it, I'm, I'm honestly I'm not a frequent user about about the online life and ferry service, but um, I I would see that if, um, they they can do more to to uh, make the user have more quality service like. Uh, that uh, we say before, uh, we, we have, uh, I heard that uh, they should they make better connection with other public transport because uh, most ferry users, when they wish the ferry, they uh, wish the pier, they, they, they have to do some connections. So, um, including buses or the um, how we walk back to the to the city center. So, uh, I think governments do more on this to attract and uh, make their ferry. Service become more attractive, so um, so uh, there's something that governments can do more. And um, but honestly, uh, are they ready? And uh, but the question: Are they a quality service for that? Um, because they, um, you know, that um, I don't think um, the quality service. Um, I mean, uh, they are not very. Um, I'm getting disappointed. I think I think people for the other islands are disappointed about that. So, um, so I think I think um, so. So the important thing is that how how they contemplate with the with the uh, residents to using the service. So, but we don't see if it's doing very good consultation between that. When you're talking about connect, better connections between the ferry and bus, you're basically talking about land tower, aren't you? I mean, there old buses on the other outline island ferries. Them. Should it be the same company, the ferry company and the bus company? Well, I don't think uh, it's a must to be the same company, but how to they make better uh, communication between them. But, uh, but uh, I mean, it's interesting that transport department always not uh, treat them as a as a whole. Uh, sometimes the buses deduct their, their frequency, uh, deduct their service, and suddenly make all the ferry connections not. So uh, it's a, I think that's a, quite a big issue that uh, transport department didn't see as a whole. Right. And Mr. Cheng, you just mentioned that the, the government should help the ferry operators lower cost. I mean, do you have any suggestions? I mean, earlier in the program, we talked about uh, exploring other revenue sources. But apart from that, what, what can, what can uh, I mean, what, what assistance can the government offer? Okay. So, uh, for example, the, um, the, one of the ferry companies say, uh, why, uh, why they increase, uh, have they increased the ticket? Uh, because um, they are trying to using more uh, environmental fellowships, uh, more environmental fellowships. Um, in, in, in such a, uh, challenging, uh, environment, they spend lots of cost to, to change the leadership that they definitely need, uh, putting more cost on, onto our customer pocket. So, uh, I, I think what this is something that government may, may do. Maybe, um, for maybe some uh, some subsidies, subsidize uh, them to change for more 
broadening the topic out a bit and thinking about what the government could do. Do you, do, you, do you think there are other things the government could do to improve the public transport situation on the outline? Particularly South Lantau, of course. I mean, should they allow more direct bus connections from the cities or um, force the um, ferry operator and the new Lantau bus company to work together? No, the, the, the managing managing transport and the intermodality between the, you know, the connections between these transport, of course, is, is an important. It's a task of the transport department. They've got to sort that out. They've got to take leadership. And um, from what we hear from the uh, the person who just called in and lives on Lantau, there, there is a big issue. Um, the, the, I think the issue for for me is having been on the Harbourfront Commission for about 20 years and we've looked at the ferry piers. The government has looked at the upgrading of the ferry piers in Central and upgrading of the ferry piers in the Star Ferry for more than a decade. Nothing has happened. These are potentially major sources of revenue that have not been used. Star Ferry Company has made presentations for upgrading the Star Ferry uh, terminal in in um, in Cha Choi. No action. Uh, there's been because we, they would need government approval to. We well, need, they, they'd be willing to fund it, right? It's it's a collaborative ac- action. You need to well, work they want government funding. There is difficulties, and there is uh, you know you have to do uh, uh, the the seawall needs to be strengthened. You have to who owns the ferry pier structure, then and so you, how the money goes. You need to work together. So it needs to, it's a collaborative project, but nothing has happened. Um, Go on the, the Star Ferry, go to the Watermark restaurant. It's been sitting there dilapidated with dispute about public space for the last for the last decade. That's a potential revenue source, no use. All the other ferry, the outlying ferry piers, the, they have been designed for building structures on top for restaurants and so for non-fair revenue. Hasn't happened. So, you know, there has been no pressure. So we, t- we easily talk about fair, fair price increases, and we just focus on that. But we're not focusing on potentially other sources of revenue that are very important, and those are the, the ferry piers. And it just isn't happening. It's too complicated for government to deal with it, uh, or uh, I don't understand why um, they are not dealing with it. And I think part of that is there is no transparency about uh, revenue sources of the ferry companies. We're not seeing a debate where people can see, okay, this is from the from the revenues from the ferry. This is from the non-fair revenues. How can we increase non-fair revenues? Where does it come from? Then you can have a debate with society. But, hey, guys, if we fix up the piers or allow things to happen faster on these piers and redevelop them faster, then, there's more, then we don't have to increase the fares that quickly. That discussion, have you seen it in the last few months? Have we discussed these fair increases? None. And to oh. me, that is important. All right. I have this uh, comment here from John. He says, uh, there is no spare electrical capacity at uh, Hong Kong Island Star Ferry Piers. He blame, and then he blames the Hong Kong Electric for bad planning. Is that an issue? Uh, yeah, and it's the same thing. as So, for example, the sewage, sewage systems. If you look at the ferry piers in, in North Point, that we, the guys want to put in restaurants, they're not connected to the sewer system. I mean, it's just simple things that have not been sorted out. If you want to make good yeah. use of these ferry piers, then you, the government departments have to work together with a clear, a clear objective of making better use of these ferry piers. So that, and, there, and then you have better non-fare revenue, and then you can keep the fares low. It's uh, simple. I think Alec Jane wants to come back on the issue of electricity because, of course, Alec Jane was the one who was early on saying that we could have electric ferries. But if there's not enough electricity at the ferry pier, then that would be a non-starter. Alec Jane, well, you can do that. As well, 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 but this is. This is not a non-starter, and as Paul said rightly, that it's, it's something.
something that government needs to sort out. I mean, in today, if there was a shopping mall built on this very pier, <laughs> and there would, all those things would be sorted out. Why can't we just treat it as an essential public infrastructure and then provide these connectivity of sewage systems, electricity systems to the ferry piers? And then a lot of, big part of the problem will be sorted from there. All right, uh, Mr. Jane, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Alok Jane, CEO and Managing Director of TransConsult. Many thanks also to Paul Zimmerman, Southern District Councillor, and uh, Quinton Chang, a spokesman for the Commuter Concern Group Public Transport Research Team. It's now 9.44, and in a moment, we'll speak to a veteran film researcher about the life of veteran Hong Kong actor Richard Ng, who just passed away earlier this week. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Teen, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RPHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RPHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them, and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Veteran local actor and comedian Richard Ng, who starred in some of Hong Kong's most popular comedies in the 1970s and 80s, alongside other well-known local stars such as Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan and Andy Lau, has died at the age of 83. To help us look back at his career, we're now joined on the line by Sam Ho, a veteran film researcher and former programmer of the Hong Kong Film Archive. Good morning, Mr Ho. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, most of us who grew up in Hong Kong have seen movies with uh, Richard Ng in it. But for those of us who haven't, can you tell us what kind of actor he is and uh, what's he, what he's uh, best known for? Okay, um, Richard Ng is actually a veteran actor who has, has appeared in over 100 films uh, in Hong Kong and in the UK and in Hollywood. Uh, so he's a very versatile Actor, and of course, he's best known for being uh, a, a, a comedian uh, in the many uh, comedies that he starred in and or played in uh, in the 1980s. Um, probably the most famous, and actually, the film that put him on the map uh, was the film uh, Winners and Sinners, which was uh, uh, a, a franchise that started in 1976. It's an ensemble film featuring five comedians, and it was it quickly became a classic and gave birth to a series, uh, a very profitable, productive, and very funny series. And he since then had appeared in a lot of comedies, several other series, uh, but also in other films and in drama and in uh, action films. So it's a great actor and a great comedian. And you mentioned Winners and Sinners, and that's actually um, where he got his first nomination for Best Actor, right, at the yes. uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. Yes, yes. He was, that uh, was the film that he got his first uh, nomination for. I mean, of course, it's, he has a memorable scene in the film in which he appeared naked, stark naked, because his character imagined himself to be invisible, 
of course, uh, he, he was not invisible, but the other four co-stars uh, kind of tricked him into believing that if he takes off all his clothes, he'll be invisible. So he actually walked around naked, and it's, it's a very, very funny scene, and uh, he was totally comfortable in doing that. Let's remember, it was 1970, that when was male pretty... nudity was not that common. So would this have been one of the first male nudity on uh, on local TV? Hello, hello. I, I cannot hear. This, would this have been one of the first local um, male nudity on local TV? In that case, you were saying it was in the nineteen seventies. Oh, it was a film. It was a not a film. A, uh, not a television show. So, so yeah, yeah, male nudity on the, is, is even rare in uh, in TV today. Right. And later on, I mean, um, I was doing a bit of research and also um, later on, I know he was also nominated for, for another award uh, for his uh, performance in uh, Beyond the Sunset. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually a, a, a more of a uh, less of a comedy, but it is a, um, a drama film. And he, he, he did very well. I mean, one reason for him uh, to be so popular and so loved uh, because of it, because of his formal training in theater in the UK, because he went to UK, uh, I think to attend high school, uh, and, and then uh, uh, graduating to dental school uh, at the UK. But I think uh, he dropped out of dental school to study theater because he he, he knew that uh, being a dentist uh, uh, would not be something he enjoyed the rest of his life. And uh, because of that, because of his formal training uh, in theater, um, he is actually a very accomplished actor. And he was able to be understated in his uh, acting, especially in, uh, in, uh, in his comedies. Because if we know, because in Hollywood, uh, in comedy duels, you know, they usually they team a straight man with a funny man. And the straight man always got paid more. Because straight men are more difficult to play, and uh, Richard Ng is kind of the Hong Kong version of the straight man, funny man. So he really chose the right career. Then he gives up dentistry, and then when he goes into um, acting, he he chooses the um, the so the the the, uh, the the role that's going to get you paid more. Oh yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. I mean, but of course, he started in just regular dramas in the UK, um, but he uh, uh, he went back to Hong Kong actually, and. Uh, to to uh, started a, uh, a hairstyling business in Hong Kong with his wife, um, and his wife was a well-known uh, hairstylist. And I think uh, the legend has it that his wife actually uh, did Bruce Lee's hair, <laughs> and it was through that connection that uh, uh, Richard Ng uh, got to know some uh, showbiz. Uh, showbiz people and was introduced to uh, first in television and then later on to the film. Right. I have a comment here from our listener, Henry, and uh, he says, uh, Richard Ng is a good comedian actor. He has given a lot of happy times to us in his movies. And uh, he also says that uh, this uh, contrasts with his, with his uh, childhood days because um, some newspapers said he was likely to be unhappy owing to his large family. And then uh, Henry goes on to say that Global Times reported on Richard Ng's death, indicating he is by no means a small potato in the Hong Kong film industry. And uh, that comment is from Henry. So, Mr. Ho, he had a big family. Do you? I mean, can you tell us a bit about his background? Oh yeah. How yeah. big was his family? 
Uh, he's, a, he's a huge potato in, in more ways than one. Uh, he, he came from a rich family. His, his father was a, one of the wealthiest men in Hong Kong. It was a huge family. Um, uh, but he was actually, had, he actually had a very unhappy childhood because his mother died young. Uh, wealthy men at the time have many wives, and uh, Richard's father, uh, uh, Richard's mother, uh, was only one of the wives. So when uh, his mother died, he was picked on. Uh, according to reports, he was picked on by his siblings. And uh, he was, was treated not very well uh, by the matron of the family and was sent uh, to the UK to, uh, to go to high school. And when he was in high school, he was also picked on and bullied. Uh, uh, so he had a very unhappy childhood. And I mean, I'm, I'm very fond of saying suffering is bad for human beings, but it's good for art. And I, I, I do truly believe that he, uh, he translated his early suffering into a very fruitful acting career and became a more than just a small potato, but a huge potato. <laughs> now, he was so famous in Hong Kong, and uh, as you said, he, <coughs> he spent a lot of time in Britain, and he did appear in various shows there. But still, uh, I think if you asked anyone in Britain about uh, famous Hong Kong actors, they, they'd mention Jackie Chan, they might mention Bruce Lee, but uh, they wouldn't have heard of, uh, of Richard. I mean, so why right. is that? Right, right. Well, he, he never played any major role he was, uh, in, in the UK productions. He, he, he was in film and, and in television, but usually playing uh, most of the stereotype roles. Uh, uh, um, for example, like a, a, a restaurant owner, you know, a cook, or, you know, pretty stereotypical Chinese characters. Um, so, uh, and, and, and it's all, it all, it never makes a lot of sense that when he came back to Hong Kong, I think he was actually quite dejected. A little bit like Bruce Lee, that he came back to Hong Kong and, and, and ran his hairstyling, uh, business. And, uh, uh, similar to Bruce Lee, he came back to Hong Kong and became a star shortly after. So why are you saying he's a bit, de bit dejected when he came back to Hong Kong? Why, why was that? Uh, because his... Well, he went to he went to college to study theater. He wanted to be a legitimate uh, 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 actor, but was playing on mostly stereotypical roles oh, uh, uh, in UK productions and um, and television. So, so he was, that's the dejection. He was caught in that. There's actually a fairly yes, common trap, that, isn't it? Right? Yes. Where you you you're, oh, you're typecast. You only appear as the almost the token Chinese in the in the in these in these uh, different productions. Exactly. Right. And earlier, Mr. Ho, you mentioned uh, that uh, Richard Ng, he was uh, uh, not only uh, in um, performances in the UK, but also in Hollywood. I mean, I mean, have we seen him anywhere in any Hollywood movies? Maybe that. Oh yeah, <laughs> he was in one of the uh, Tomb Raiders. Uh, uh, I think, yeah, uh, I think the second installment of the Tomb Raider series. Oh, and he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wait, I, I, I want to mention a little bit also about his acting because you know, he's, he's such a wonderful comedian um uh he 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 as he has known for his stone face uh he, he was called in chinese lang min siu zheng, you know a, a comedian a stone face comedian but i think when we use the english phrase stone face comedian we think about buster keaton you know who's uh, you know absolutely you know the, uh, the definition of stone face but uh, richard eng is less a stone face than a slightly smiling face I mean, he always had this little uh, uh, cynical, funny, and mostly ambiguous smile. And in, in Chinese, uh, we, we call that 
皮笑肉不笑 ，which translate as smiles with his skin but not with his flesh. It's a very shallow smile, and and it was a very very mysterious expression that he was able to express a lot of emotions with that kind of a very subtle smile of his. So it, it's it's sort of a variation of the stone faced comedian. Yeah, I think I did see a bit of that uh, when I um, watched a clip of uh, him with uh, Sam Hung and Michelle Yeoh in the Lucky Star series. Uh, that, that was pretty funny. It was like the uh, judo scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty good. But another wonderful thing about uh, Richard Ng was uh, he is a great ensemble uh, actor. I mean, he, he, of course, in the in the eighties, uh, ensemble comedies. Uh, was a trend because uh, the eighties was a boom time of Hong Kong comedy, and uh, of course, uh, you know, started out with one comedian, you know. But of course, Michael Huey started all of that. Uh, uh, he starred with his uh, uh, younger brother Samuel Huey, which whom we all know very well, even up to this day, the great pop star. So this comedy duel thing started in the seventies, and but of course, by the eighties, uh, we wanted bigger, so we have this. Uh, uh, winners and sinners with five people in, in Chinese is called boxing. Uh, five comedians, um, five fortune stars. Um, so uh, and uh, Richard Ng was very well in playing against uh, his uh, his fellow uh, uh, actors, like in a new scene. You know, it, 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 the other four fortune stars were making fun of him, and he was being made fun of, and he played this. Like uh, uh, the opposite of me, Mong Sam Jang, which is like uh, uh, on the surface he's foolish, but he's actually very smart in the, in the heart. But he plays his character with the opposite. He's very smart on the outside, but actually kind of foolish on the inside. And so, and that uh, you know that 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 chemistry between him and the other four fortune stars was just great. And also in that scene that you just described, uh, his. Working with other actors, his passing away is a great opportunity to reminisce about the heydays of Hong Kong cinema. But I mean, I mean, you're talking about those. Are those gone now? Are there are there no more Richings around? And we're we're just, we're just going to be retrospectively looking back at these things. I think so. I think so. But but of course, we need to remember one thing: that the '80s boom of Hong Kong cinema is an exception that proves the rule. The exception. One of the major reasons for that exception was that. At that time, Hong Kong film's audience was much, much bigger than Hong Kong's population uh, because of the overseas Chinese uh, uh, market, uh, and, and that market has since disappeared. So Hong Kong, in a way, is back to normal, uh, and 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 also uh, comedies are very different today than in the 80s because we laugh at different things, um, uh, you know. Uh, 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 in, in, in many ways, in the 80s, Hong Kong was in the nouveau riche uh, 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 era when we suddenly became rich and we celebrated a lot of things. All right, Mr. Ho, I'm afraid Hello? we're out of time. That's all we have okay. time for for today. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Sam Ho, a veteran film researcher and former programmer of the Hong Kong Film Archive. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today, and of course to our guest presenter Danny Gittings and producer Angie. Jim Gold and Mike Rouse will be back with another edition of Back Chat on Monday.